It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. fight in France, we shall fight on the seas and oceans, we shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields. Winston Churchill, you learned about him at school. The wartime Prime Minister who gave rousing speeches and led the Allied forces to victory in Europe. We shall never surrender. Maybe you even watched Gary Oldman play him on the big screen. A brusque, sometimes rude, copious drinker, willing to defend liberal democracy and defeat fascism at any and all costs. But history is made up of narratives. Outcomes of selecting events of yesterday and stringing them together by an explanation that more often than not serves some purpose today. Like Oscar baiting. Tarek Ali is an intellectual, activist, and author of Winston Churchill, His Times, His Crimes. We discuss the events in Churchill's life, excluded from most high school history classes and films like The Darkest Hour. Like Churchill's penchant to act as the hobnail boot on the necks of striking workers. Or that his hatred of Hitler was on the same basis as his hatred of Gandhi. They both threatened the supremacy of the British Empire. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Am I tough enough? Strong and stable leadership. Total rhubarb. Hell yes, I'm tough enough. Shut the fridge. Not another one! It's the Politics Show Pubcast. How's it going? Hi. It's going all right. Uh, can't say the world is going well, but, you know, we try, we struggle a lot. We do, we do. Um, I'm glad to hear that you're OK regardless. Um, we're here to talk today about your book, Winston Churchill, His Times, His Crimes. Um, before we get into the meaty subject matter contained here, I was wondering if you could start off by telling us who you are in your own words. I'm a writer. Uh, I have been and still am 
a political activist. I've made films, I've written novels, I've written non-fiction books. So what I've been doing over the last 50 years is very political, whether in what I write, in what I do, and it encourages people to debate and discuss. I never write saying you've got to accept my views, it's foolish, but to try and stimulate people uh, to think. And only recently uh, it was revealed that the British intelligence and uh, special branch and its special units have been spying on me for nearly 60 years. Um, why they did that, I don't know, because most of the things I say are public anyway, or written in my books. So often during the Commission of Inquiry, they were reading from my books and saying, is this accurate? I said, yeah, I wrote it, and I think it's accurate. But this was written, you know, some 40 years ago. <laughs> Still accurate. So um, that's who I am. Then it's interesting you mentioned there the encroachment of the British security state because all across British society and political life it might be prominent trade unionists. Um, we've seen the the case of the Metropolitan Police undercover police officers infiltrating environmentalist groups, leftist protesters in some cases even having romantic relationships with political activists and fathering yeah. children with them. That's why we have the inquiry taking place. And uh, they've been spying on me for so long, I think 15 or 16 uh, special undercover police were used to spy on me over the last 50 years. Extraordinary. It's a waste of public money apart from anything else. <laughs> Why bother when we're not hiding anything? Well, yeah, it's in plain sight. It's in your book. So what do they need to uh, <laughs> yeah, undercover, just... undercover reports on you for? Um, Tarek, in, in your book, um, the Churchill book we were just discussing in the preface, you mentioned that there are more than, well, some at least, 1,600, whether it's biographies, memoirs, histories of Winston Churchill. Um, why did you feel the need to write your text? Because most of these books, some of which are very good, by the way, but most of them are basically buff jobs in, to one degree or another. And I thought, given that there were now young kids marching, daubing his statue with red paint, painting slogans on the walls of Churchill College in Cambridge, that one should do a history book from the other side, saying this is the, another view of Churchill. Very critical, but none of the facts in it can be disputed. And also to encourage young people, especially, to read the book so that they have strong arguments when they argue with people, not just say he was a racist. Everyone knows that and he never denied it. But if he was just that, it would be yet another guy who's a politician who's a racist. I wanted to spell it out, who he was, which section of the ruling class he came from, what were his aims, what were his views, why was he such a colonialist, what were the crimes he committed, to write a book. And uh, by the way, uh, I'm really pleased at the response the book has had from sixth form, sixth form 
students and university students, both young men and young women. I get emails from them saying, thanks, we didn't know this. And that doesn't happen that often. You write a book and you get so many emails thanking you from young people or their parents who I know in some cases saying, God, you've made our kids political again. So it's had that sort of impact, which is which pleases me because it's really a book written for a younger generation who have no idea who Churchill really was. All they think is Churchill, Second World War, we won, that's mm. it. Uh, and there have been all these movies glorifying him, etc., which never ask awkward questions. It's interesting that, to hear you describe it as another view because the orthodox view, or even perhaps, I don't know, the popular view is, is of him as sort of the wartime hero. Um, and as your book demonstrates, there's quite a contrast between how Churchill figures in the public imagination and the reality with some of the aspects of not just his politics, but also his personal life. Yeah. I mean, you know something, that this glorification of Churchill and idealization of him started in earnest, not at the time of the Second World War, nor afterwards, but when Mrs. Thatcher became Prime Minister in the 80s, and she started using Churchill for her own purposes, especially when they went to fight the war in the Falklands. Um, to try and maintain a British colony with the Argentinians that belonged to them. And for that war, Churchill was conjured non-stop and made into this unassailable political hero. When he was alive, this wasn't the case. I mean, you have to ask if he was that popular during the war, how come that the British people elected the Labour Party? The great wartime hero was ignored. He was sort of went away and sulked shocked, couldn't believe that the Labour Party had been elected. And that was a radical Labour Party, not like the present Shah we've got. <laughs> and so, um, uh, and this carried on in the 60s. Satirists used to mock him and mock this sort of fake patriotism uh, that sometimes they tried to create. I mean, there are lots of critical things. Uh, uh, Richard Burton, the actor who played Churchill in various American uh, dramas and in the movies, was once asked by the New York Times, well, you play Churchill brilliantly, what do you think of him? And he said, I hate him. He said, I grew up in the Welsh Valleys. We haven't forgotten what Churchill did. He said, you disgusting little toy soldier. This is one of the great actors of the British stage and screen talking to an American. The guy was shocked because they had no idea. Um, and it's also worth remembering that Churchill's assaults on working people in this country led to the fact that when it was time to build a statue for him in Parliament Square, not a single Welsh council Labour or not, agreed to donate money because the memory of Churchill in Wales was that of an aggressive, brutal uh, uh, Home Secretary who tried to crush the miners, um, you know, and uh, 
mean, there's one remark he made which still shocks me that a you know, prime uh, not prime minister, a government minister could make that remark and get away with it. And people were arguing with him, saying the miners are on pitiful wages. They they have not enough money to fill their stomachs. And Churchill sell, said, joking, of course, we'll soon fill their stomachs with lead. That was the mentality. There's an enemy within we have to fight against as well. And that's, for, that's what he was really known for. World War II came long, long after. Yeah, you, I mean, you're, you're alluding to Tony Pandy and among other things here, and I would like us later to discuss in more detail Churchill's hostility towards the working class domestically in Britain. Um, if we could just stay for a moment on the kind of the, 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 the popular image around him. Uh, the question, I guess, is a how and a why. Sort of what were the, what were the mechanisms for the creating the image that looms large in the British psyche now? And also the why. Was it, it, it almost seems um, peculiar, but it, unlikely to suggest that because, you know, Mrs. Thatcher wanted to provide this justification for the Falklands that then this huge spate of biographies comes out that there's some kind of inner... Uh, sort of grand conspiracy happening here. Well, could you talk about the how and the why a little bit more? Well, I think there was a backlash to the radicalism of the 60s. Everything in the 60s, the rock music, the demonstrations, the way people dressed, the movement for gay rights, the ending of sexual oppression against young and old people, that had gone by the end of the 70s. And some people felt it had gone too far, national heroes were being mocked, the First World War was being satirised on the stages in London, etc, etc. And I think within politics and within culture, a backlash began. And who better to be at the head of the backlash than the figure of Winston Churchill? you know, the English bulldog. Mm. He represented us. And um, so they built him up. And I mean, otherwise, you know, it's not conspiracy. It's just an understanding on the part of those who control everything, you know, the media, the newspapers, etc., to have at least one guy who people could identify with, regardless of which political party they belong to. And they picked on Churchill and uh, they've been successful. We mm. have to say that. Because from Thatcher, Tony Blair fought the war in Iraq. Uh, other Tory and Labour leaders fought in Libya and here, there, everywhere. It became an epoch of new wars in the 21st century. Um, <clears throat> so uh, that led to the need for Churchill as well. You know, if you look from 56 onwards, uh, the Tory minister, Anthony Eden, decides to wage war against Egypt to topple a popular government. And they call the Egyptian leader, Gamal Abdel Nasser, the Hitler on the Nile. Everything goes back to the Second World War, the implication being in Weir Churchill. Uh, Blair refers to the Serbian leader, Milosevic, as a Hitler. Iraq, Saddam Hussein is a Hitler. So you'd feel, what was the point of defeating fascism if fascism has sprung up all over the world like this? So they constantly use that 
first, uh, Second World War imagery, because Hitler, of course, is the most evil person in, in the world, in the minds of many, and understandably so. But um, so Churchill was the opposite of that. And so they built him up, you know, the number of films and television dramas and documentaries are astonishing. It never happened in the 50s and 60s. There were films of the Second World War in the 50s and in the 60s, um, and, but never the glorification of one particular person in this fashion. In, in the context then of all of these biographies, why do you think other historians, writers have shied away from touching the more racist, openly hostile towards the working class, that, that kind of material that's evident and explicit in much of what Churchill's spoken, spoken about and said? Why do you think they've shied away from touching yeah, it? Yeah, well, Churchill, you know, to be fair to him, he never denied any of this. Mm. You know, if you asked him, are you a racist, he said, well, everyone was. Oh, well, undeniable. Did you create, love the British Empire? Yes. Did you make rude remarks of the leaders of the people trying to free themselves from the British Empire? Yes. You know, when he was told that there was a famine going on in India during the Second World War, in Bengal, in which two to three million, if not more, died, Churchill's colleagues said, we have to help them. The Viceroy in India, Lord Wavell, said, we have to help them. Churchill said, no, we are fighting a war. The priority is to feed, uh, feed ourselves. And then he asked someone sitting next to him at dinner, do you think the famine in Bengal is bad? He said, yes, it is. And Churchill said, if the famine was that bad, how come Gandhi is still alive? This guy was a fellow cabinet minister, and he wrote in his diary, I think it was Amory, mm. Secretary of State for India, wrote in his diary, this is what Winston said, on as far as India is concerned, he is completely out of his mind, full stop, his views no different from those of Hitler. Now this is what his own colleagues are saying, so covering it up in just, by and large, for most of these people who write about him, either concentrating on one aspect or cutting out most of this stuff. Mm. So all I had to do was you know, read dozens and dozens of books and documents and uh, journals, etc., to construct this alternative framing of Churchill. I so that people at least have something they can debate on. Yes, know? of course, yeah. I think, um, I think Amory was, also, was a friend of his as well, so for him to say something like that is obviously quite strong. Um, is there a, to play devil's advocate, is there a risk of us superimposing our modern values, our modern British values, onto the past and is that an instructive exercise to do to say you know I think no one these days hopefully would dispute the grotesqueness of the remarks that Churchill has made publicly and in private as you've just mentioned is it an instructive historical exercise for us to go well that's that's disgusting now do, do you know what I'm saying I am but you know it still goes on mm. that is why it's important to criticize it especially when Churchill used to say these things. You know, you pick up a newspaper today, the day you come to interview me, and you learn that some of the people sent by the Brits into Afghanistan, SAS soldiers, 
were sent in to train and practice by killing Afghans. So any Afghan who could we carry a rifle, they just went into their homes and shot them dead and justified it in private. Or what the Americans were caught saying in Iraq not so long ago. Julian Assange is in prison because he put on, made available to the public a documentary in which an American helicopter is strafing civilians in Baghdad after they've captured it and making remarks about the Arab people as if they were worse than animals. So it still goes on and glorifying Churchill is part and parcel of this. This is what we were. Okay, we might have gone too far, but you're still going too far. That's what I say. So it's, we may be modern, we may find these things offensive, uh, but no one stops them. The government's carrying on doing them. And that shouldn't be uh, forgotten. We live, in a, we live in an era of double standards. What the Russians do in the Ukraine is wrong, with which I agree, it is wrong, no question about it. But what we do in the Yemen, what we've done in Libya, what we've done in Iraq, uh, what we're doing every single day in Palestine, that's fine, no one cares. Why should we care? You know, because our side is doing that. And this uh, business is it's very dangerous, actually, which is why the importance of some degree of an independent alternative media which puts another point of view. It doesn't say everything I'm saying is right. It says, go and judge for yourself, read both sides, which you can no longer do in a bulk of the British media. Mm. Yes, I, I agree. I agree completely. I mean, just to touch on, um, to talk about Iraq for a little bit longer, there's the, the justification you argue in the way, sorry, the, the, your argument that Churchill is kind of invoked as justification for these in these 21st century wars. There's also the the more concrete connection of Churchill to particularly what happened in Iraq in relation to the Balfour Declaration. Yeah, exactly. I mean, basically, uh, since Turkey or the Ottoman Empire, as it was then, was involved on the German side in the First World War, it was forced to give up all its colonies. Britain and France took over those colonies. Under the Ottoman Empire, the Arab world used to be one world. It was a world of cities. So you could go to school in Amman and Jordan. Uh, you could go to another school in Jerusalem and you could graduate in Cairo. Lots of kids did that. One world. Uh, they were not different countries. And that was probably in some ways the sort of best phase of the Arab world. Um, the Western empires came in and divided that world, making little countries. I mean, Egypt was always a separate country, divided from the rest of the world. But there was no Iraq, there was no Jordan. Syria was a huge country, but the Arab world was one place. And that they divided very deliberately after the First World War, so they drew maps in the sand, as a British civil servant famously said. And there were rebellions, and Churchill was very forward in crushing these rebellions. He defended the use of chemical warfare against the Kurds in Iraq in the 20s. 
And when the Balfour Declaration uh, came into being, where they wanted to create a new colony consisting mainly of Jewish people, the only member in the cabinet who attacked this Balfour Declaration was Montague, a Jewish member of the cabinet. And he said, why are you doing this? You want to drive the Jews out of Europe. The other people who were strongly in favor of the Balfour Declaration or something resembling it were the Nazis in Germany. They said, yeah, let's give them their own place. You know, it was that sort of an attitude, which is why it's really depressing to see what the Israelis are doing to the Palestinians today. Not a single day goes past without reading of yet another kid being killed, young boys being targeted, women being mistreated, and daily tortures, killings, deaths. No one talks about it that much. I mean, some of us do, some of the networks in other parts of the world, Al Jazeera, for instance, report it. The BBC? No. CNN? No. So people are being killed, and some of these are like pogroms. You know, these wild settlers who, from Brooklyn who now live in Israel going and killing Palestinians and burning their houses. These are people who've lived there for hundreds of years. Nothing happens. So there's double standards are really driving uh, people mad. And they existed at the time of Churchill, but more openly, because they, in those times, Churchill and his gang, all the colonialists in France and Belgium and Germany and elsewhere, he wasn't alone. He was the, you know, Britain had the largest empire, but it wasn't the only one. Uh, and they used to have this inbuilt theory that Western civilization is innately superior to everything else in the world. We're a superior civilization that makes us a superior race. And so the white race, you can see it in many, many poems of the period, Kipling in particular, uh, that this is a fight of the white race uh, against inferior races. So um, that went on, and that is still the view expressed in more careful language by these people who go and wage wars in Afghanistan and Somalia and elsewhere. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. 
Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have it to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's the Politics Show podcast. There's a quote here from... Um, Churchill's evidence to the Peel Commission, where he says, I do not believe that the dog in the manger has the final right to the manger, even though he may have lain there for a very long time. I do not admit, for instance, that a great wrong has been done to the Red Indians of America or the black people of Australia. I do not admit that a wrong has been done to these people by the fact that a stronger race, a higher grade race, or at any rate, a more worldly wise race, to put it that way, has come in and taken their place. I mean, that... It's just explicit white supremacy, isn't it? Exactly. And no one, I mean, you know, within the Labour Party, leave aside the Tories, very few people inside the Labour Party attack these views because most of them believed in them themselves. Mm. So the whole of the British political system was part and parcel of this this empire. And I noticed in the Ukraine-Russian war People are now beginning to say the Russians are inferior to us, we shouldn't read their books. What absurdity. I mean, the Russians with whom you were hobnobbing only a few years ago with virtually every Russian oligarch having a few government ministers in his pocket, Mm. buying up British newspapers, all that was fine. This is all... Suddenly that changes. People aren't that stupid, you know. They can see sometimes what's going on. Well, this is this is why it's, it seems quite peculiar almost that when, you know, I've, I've just read, read out a verbatim quote, it's explicit, it's open, and yet it's provocative to say the things that you're saying about Winston Churchill. It's, beco- it's become a culture war. Exactly. Flashpoint to discuss yeah. these things. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> and I mean, I was actually not at all surprised that... Uh, the gurus of the right attacked this book. It was very helpful. I was pleased they attacked it, since liberals were sort of shying away from reviewing it. The attack of the right actually made the book known to lots of people who had no idea it existed. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm very grateful to them. And please do it again, guys. I think uh, Simon Heffer's quote on the back is uh, a Marxist insult to history, I think. Something something along those lines. Um, Yeah, well, I mean, it's a Absurd, but never mind. Um, you're not in favour, though, of the tearing down of the statues of Churchill. Could you talk to me a little bit more about that? I mean, well, look, my overall position is that there are some statues which should be brought down, which are unacceptable, and these are mainly statues of, I would say of slaveholders and people who transported human beings and sold them, who then came and spent the money in their local towns and were worshipped as great benefactors of civilization. That, if there is a mood from below of people tearing that down, fine. I'm not so much in favor of tearing down Churchill's, in fact, I'm not in favor at all of tearing down Churchill's statues, or the statues of many other political figures, and and in most cases, even of generals. Why? Because this is part of the history 
of a history of the country in which we all live. So what I've always suggested is don't tear down statues because it's but try and organize debates. So where they have a plaque for, say, General X or politician Y praising them, argue in favor of putting an alternative plaque not too far away from the statue, saying there is another view, colon, plonk. Mm. This is what this person was really like. So people and tourists who come and see these things read that. Then they read the other bit and they scratch their heads. And if they want more information, they go and read a book or go into the library and check out. It's a much more creative way than of tearing down statues. I've never been too attracted to that. And to be fair, I don't think anyone, none of the groups tearing down statues have actually asked for Churchill statues to be torn down. That's just not the case. They'd mm -hmm. want to do paint on them once a year. Well, that's not such a big deal, though even there I think it's better to find other ways, but fine. But no one has called for, for, for these statues to be done. It's a way of the sort of, you know, the worst aspects of cancel culture, which I don't like by saying, do not, X is coming to speak or Y is coming to read from her novel, but they've written things in these books that we don't like. Well, my answer to that is, if you don't like them, don't go to the talk. Mm. Don't go and listen to the movie. Don't go and listen to the debate. Don't go and listen to the lecture. Obviously, there are cases in which extremely vile people are invited, then demonstrate. But by and large, on an everyday basis, it's not a healthy thing by either the right or the left to cancel, which, you know, the right is trying to do in the case of the Russians now. Mm. Or, I mean, there have been cases in the United States of libraries taking Mark Twain's novels out of the library in case someone's offended. But for God's sake... I mean, don't read anything then, because something in a book is bound to offend you. However, you know, whatever the author's view. So it's, it's this sort of thing I don't particularly like, and the statues are part of it. Is it there are exceptions, obviously. Is it your view that the realms of acceptable debate have narrowed in recent times, and if so, who, who do you think is responsible for that? Because I think a lot of people would suggest that in modern times, far from, let's say, in the 60s and 70s, when in, in reaction to sort of counterculture, it was it was the rights who were often sort of impinging on freedom of speech and freedom of expression. And, and it was typically your sort of your left wingers who are campaigning for those causes. I think in the modern day, I think most people would probably argue that actually they see the left wing being the more censorious of the two. So do you accept that the realms of acceptable debate have narrowed and that perhaps it's the left that's responsible for that? Well, <clears throat> I think it's not only the left, but it certainly includes the left, and I'm very critical of that. I mean, how does society move forward if there's no debate and no discussion? 
you have to go then underground. Mercifully, you have uh, the internet, so there's some stuff that can be done on that, but there's a lot of rubbish too on the internet. Yeah, as we know to me too well. Uh, but I'm not in favor of cancelling people uh, just like that because you don't approve of what they say. I've never been in favor of that, to tell you the truth. When I was young, growing up in Pakistan, I, we had a military dictatorship. There were no civil rights, no political rights. So the demand for freedom, the right to speech for a free press were everyday demands. And suddenly to sort of, you know, be still alive <laughs> in the 21st century to say people are saying, no, ban this, ban that, ban. I'm not in favor of it. Mm. I think it's extremely negative and I think no one will benefit. Because what you're saying is not that it offends me, but what you're trying to impose to a fellow member of the audience, it should offend you. You're not offended? Why aren't you offended? You should be. And that's an imposition without an argument, mm. you know. And the, the interesting thing is that these are sort of debates carrying on, carried out within a very narrow sphere. It's a tiny, tiny minority. So I've never, I've never supported it. Let's go back to um, Churchill's relationship with the working class in Britain. Would you be able to talk a little bit more about well, the open hostility, really, the oppositional relationship between the two. Yeah, well, basically, uh, Churchill and other extremely intelligent members of the British ruling class always understood that their rule and their domination depended on making sure that they won the consent of the majority of people in some shape or form. They were hostile to democracy, all these people, because they feared that with voting, etc., cetera, uh, people would go over, form other parties, challenge the rights of capitalism to rule. <coughs> challenge the rights of capital to rule. That never happened in an open way. It happened to a certain degree. But British capitalism was never actually threatened by a revolution as you had in other parts of the world. They managed to keep it together. Uh, they managed to create an industrial ruling class which was completely under the grip of the old aristocracy. And this merger between the two, so the English rising bourgeoisie concentrated on economics and the old aristocracy concentrated on political domination, both of the industrialists and of society as large, and by and large they were successful. Churchill got very agitated after the Russian Revolution because that revolution had a huge impact all over Europe, including in Britain. Um, lots of support for it. The dockers went on strike uh, against a ship carrying weapons to try and defeat that revolution. There was um, delegations of British trade unions going to Russia, meeting with the new leaders, etc., etc. 
and they knew that. So any strike, any sign of radicalism after 1917 was seen as a threat. Crush it now, if we let it go on or if we make too many concessions, look what happened in Russia. That became a, but you know, not all the politicians acted like Churchill. They said, you know, this is Britain, these are people we've worked with, the, some concessions have to be made. What Churchill never believed in was um, sort of serious compromises, you know, and concessions uh, uh, to those who were not as well off as the people who ruled. And so he was deeply hostile, sending in uh, ships, uh, gunships to Liverpool at one point, tr uh, tanks and armoured cars to Scotland to try and crush a strike in Scotland, if it took place. They weren't even sure of that. The Welsh miners were the favourite enemy because they dared to strike. And uh, Churchill and others would say, the um, coal owners, the people who own the coal mines, are pretty reasonable people. Why are you against them? They're trying to help you. They could close the mines down, as if Britain could exist without coal in those days. So the miners became the principal target, and that was the case for a long time from A.J. Cook in the 20s to Arthur Scargill in the 1980s. There was a special hatred for the miners who defeat them, crush them. They're, they're the enemy within. Churchill used the word enemy within. Thatcher took it up from him. And Bland gang behaved without saying it as if they, they were the enemy within. So um, it was this dual battle, one against the colonies and against the people who lived in the colonies, and the second against his own people when they thought they were becoming too radical. And so Churchill became the symbol of that. He loved wars. It didn't matter too much who the war was against. The Germans, fine, we'll take them on. The Boers in South Africa, fine. Afterwards, they've been defeated. Oh, how courageous they were because they were white, he didn't like fire. Ireland, unstoppable number of wars and conflicts in Ireland, the creation of the black and tans. So the racism was used against the blacks and the brown people, against the Irish, um, against the Boers in South Africa. They couldn't use that, so he said they're just enemies of the British Empire, which was, of course, true. Perhaps the anti-democratic streak is uh, less surprising in the context of that imperialism abroad that you've just described. Um, but in relation specifically to fascism and fascism in Europe, do you think it's fair to say that Churchill was a sympathiser towards fascism in Europe in relation to, let's say, Franco and Mussolini? And perhaps, I mean, you argue this in the book, and I think it's probably one of the things that most people would be most sort of view as most controversial, that if the Hitler had abided by the terms of appeasement, that Churchill probably would have sympathised with him as well. The, I think there's no doubt about that. Um, he loved Mussolini, and he explained it in his own writings and essays. He, and he said, you know what he said was, if I had been an Italian, 
I would have been a supporter of um, uh, Benito Mussolini. Why? Because he was the hardest enemy the left had. Why? Because the fascists could actually mobilize extra-parliamentary demonstrations and armed gangs to defeat the Bolsheviks and anyone else on the left, the unions, the socialists, etc. Uh, he loved Mussolini, he was very keen on Franco, and even though Franco had sent the, his Condor Legion to fight in Russia, Churchill would not let Franco be removed after the war. Even the Americans were angry, and had Stalin not caved in on this issue, Franco might have been removed very soon after the war, Churchill fought single-handedly, it has to be said, to keep Franco in, in power. As far as Hitler was concerned, the desire of the entire Conservative Party in Britain and of Conservatives in Europe were the best way to stave off Hitler is to push him in the eastern direction so he fights the Russians first. That will be help us because he might defeat the Russians, um, which would get rid of the Soviet Union. And secondly, uh, he himself will be weakened because the Russians will fight back and will not want to fight another war. So it wasn't totally stupid, that thought, from their point of view. I mean, that is what the appeasers were for turn Hitler eastwards. They couldn't do that for, you know, because Hitler didn't uh, agree to that. And me, as he was taking over the whole of Europe and creating his own version of the European Union, uh, he thought that he couldn't take other parts of the world uh, unless he'd defeated the Soviet Union, they had a large army, they had a very large air force, and they would pose a constant threat to him in the rest of Europe. So he said, let's go and finish them off. And that is what saved Europe, was the fact that the Russians fought back and the Red Army basically broke the backbone of the Third Reich on the battlefields of Russia. They don't like hearing this anymore, but it's just a fact of life. You can't change it totally, because most people know that this is what happened. Um, and Churchill would have, I mean, there are things he wrote. I mean, I mean one of his essays he wrote that if, if my country had been subjected to the Treaty of Versailles, the Germans were, if Britain had been put in that position, I hope we would have produced a leader with the determination and caliber of her Hitler. Well, yeah, they would have, Churchill. To what extent do you see a connection between the violent oppression of workers in Britain domestically that we've just discussed, and then the violence conducted in colonies abroad. How do you see the relationship between those two? <clears throat> well, there were different forms of repression. But one thing has to be said, which is that a lot of the British working class was very proud of the empire. Shouldn't forget that. I mean, you can still see newsreels 
fairly recent newsreels, you know, in the 60s. Recent for me, not for you. <laughs> uh, newsreels of workers who just built the new yacht for the royal family and the queen coming to break the champagne bottle on the hull and workers auto in Scotland automatically bursting into rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves. One of the most popular songs and popular songs uh, in, in, um, in British society amongst workers, you know, that's who we are. So the force used against the British working class never approached the same scale or even anything resembling that than what was used in the colonies. I mean, American historians um, uh, have now come up with, like Caroline Elkins at Harvard, with detailed accounts of what Britain did in Kenya, which she calls the British gulags. You know, that they locked large numbers of Kenyans up. The plan was to make Kenya into another South Africa, to introduce large numbers of white settlers, give them the best lands in the country, uh, and so create a situation where the whites dominated Kenya permanently, or so they thought. They could never achieve that, because the rebellions that started in Kenya uh, prevented that basically from um, from happening or the famine in India or the famines in Ireland these were things they could never use against their own workers at home because that would have then created a huge upheaval and uh, you know Churchill was there were other forces at play as well in Britain more sensible more capable of understanding you can't go too far. You can go as far as you want in Africa and Asia, but at home you have to be a bit careful. To what extent is it right to view the American Empire as a continuation of the British Empire? That's how the British wanted to view it. And Churchill was very conscious that the only way we can preserve Western domination of the world is by handing of is by Europeans handing over all their colonies to the United States, and that's what ultimately happened. The Americans took over both the British colonies and the French and Dutch colonies for some time, and then they couldn't keep them forever. But they certainly had a had a good old try. The big difference between the American Empire as it exists and the European empires were that the Americans didn't want to send their own troops there they, to, to fight, yes, but not to stay there semi-permanently with a civil service uh, and rule the country directly. They preferred indirect rule, though I have to say that in the Arab world, while they, there's no American running things openly, they have found stooges and people who act on their behalf, their relays to do it, but they've kept American troops in many countries, which was a new turn for them after the Second World War. So if you look at the, the Japanese, cannot have an independent foreign policy because of the US base in Okinawa. 
the Germans a bit more leeway than the uh, Japanese, but there's an American presence in uh, Germany as well, and in Britain, and in Italy. So you have these American military forces and air force in a number of countries, which they've now sort of amalgamated into, not now, but you know, after the war amalgamated into NATO, but the dominant power is the United States. So you know phrases like NATO, so you say, yeah, but who is NATO? Could NATO wage a war without the approval of the United States? No. Uh, I remember I was once in Denmark debating a member of the government, and she's on Afghanistan several years ago. And she said to me, but we should not withdraw from Afghanistan the poor women. I said, yeah. What has your state done to benefit those poor women? You have a few NGOs. You'll withdraw sooner or later. No, we won't, she said. So I said, excuse me, whatever her name was. You mean to tell me that when the Americans withdraw, the Danish government is going to stay in and have kind of stuff? She said, shut up. It hadn't occurred to her. I said, you're only there because the Americans want you there. So enough of this moral claptrap. The minute the Americans are out, you'll be out. Obviously, that's what uh, uh, happened. Uh, but uh, so the Bush was very open on this, a bit like Churchill. He said, look, he, when Blair said we'll send British troops to Iraq, Bush said, if you want to send them, I know it's very unpopular, that war in Britain. So if you don't send them, it's fine. We can manage ourselves. And in public, Bush said, if we have to fight the war, we need allies. We try the United Nations. The United Nations vetoes. Fine. Even if Britain doesn't want to, we don't care. Um, if NATO is unhappy about the war, which it was in Iraq, not in Afghanistan, we don't need NATO either. We can go and fight ourselves. Meaning we, these states are just useful for us, but don't think we can't dominate the world without them. And that's, that's what they've done, really. I mean, this terrible war in Ukraine. You know, how is it going to end? Okay, we know what Putin's done. Fine. But how is it going to end? Is it going to escalate into some sort of nuclear conflict? I hope not, but these things happen suddenly. You know, you can't totally predict. The obvious thing is to force him to sit down with you, which he's done before and you've tricked him, so he doesn't trust you. But use other countries who don't support your sanctions, like India, like China, like Brazil. Make them part of the negotiations and have a settlement to stop this uh, killing and uh, war in, in Europe. There's no other option. And, but yet people have got very worked up. No, no, we'll fight. I said, you're not. The, I, when I debate, I think you're not fighting. It's the poor Ukrainians. They're being killed because the leaders, and Russians, I said, poor Russian soldiers who are being killed because their leaders made huge blunders and now are sort of not talking. Um, evidently, 
There was a meeting in Russia, a lot of Arab leaders went over and stuff, and Putin showed them a signed, no, an unsigned agreement, which the Russia and the Ukrainians had made how to end the war. And uh, he said to all these assembled heads of state, but you see at the last minute the Americans wouldn't let the Ukrainians sign, that's what happened. So, <clears throat> who knows? Tarek Ali, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. And very good to see you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That was author Tarek Ali talking to me, Ollie Dugmore. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you'd like to discuss what you've heard here, head over to the subreddit for good faith conversations and memes. See you on the next one. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods, for 50 to 80% less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.